Hey, um, guys, let me do something real fast before I point you to verse 13 is where we are. Um, I, I just want to uh, just say this here, and maybe you can help me uh, uh, disseminate the word. Um, I am going to be gone some this summer. Um, I think I've told you about the trip to Turkey, but that's in the fall. That's in September. But we are also going to be gone um, in, oh, most of June and half of July. Um, A a door has opened for me to go to (laughs) another Muslim country. Um, uh, the, The country is Azerbaijan. And there is a small, struggling little uh, Christian church there, uh, even a persecuted church. And when I say persecuted, by that I mean this. Um, no one has died there, um, but the government keeps um, messing with them and removing their permissions and their certificates and all that business, trying to, trying to eliminate them. So it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's in the city <laughs> that none of you have ever heard of. Um, Baku. Um, so um, God in his very odd providence, knowing that I have great sin over my attitudes towards Muslims, uh, is putting me squarely in the middle of Muslims. Uh, for, but I, I'm telling you that to simply say, um, for those of you who can't wait for me to retire and get lost in, you know, um, shuffleboard. Um, bad news for you. Um, I, my being away, it has nothing to, I'm not candidating, I'm not looking for a job, I'm not doing anything other than um, taking hold of what we think is a fairly exciting opportunity to minister in a Muslim world. So that's all it, it's all it is. It, it, it excites, even my, my dear non-traveling wife is, is all for it. And um, so when you, oh, and, and here's the good news. The, the, the bad news is that I'm coming back. The good news is that while I'm away, um, those five weeks, uh, the pulpit is going to be occupied by a young man by the name of Lester Newsom, that many of you know. And um, Lester Newsom, who is more of a man than I am, is going to teach a five-part series in the book of Revelation. See, I'm not man enough to take on the book of Revelation. He is, um, and the title of this five-week series is The Urgency of Wonder, which I just think really sounds cool. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you'll be so well taken care of um, by Lester and his handling of the scriptures. So there you go. Uh, verse 13, Galatians chapter 5. Um, Galatians... I mean, verse 13 represents a shift. It is a shift in direction that is characteristic of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It is a shift in the direction of the imperative. He does this in every one of his letters, and I've pointed this out to you on numerous occasions. But let let me show you the best example, I guess. The best example is in the book of Romans, where... um, where he spends the first 11 chapters talking to you or uh, to, to the audience about the, the, the great doctrines of justification and sanctification, the great uh, uh, intricacies of God's sovereignty in, in chapter 9. Um, he has spent 11 chapters telling us 
everything about who we are. Those are called a power button. Like I know what a power button looks like. Um, there's buttons over here. Um, you're, you're supposed to turn the power on. <laughs> it's coming? Okay, good. There it is. Um, he spends 11 chapters giving us what is called the indicatives. I've, I've talked to you about this before, but it's been a while since I've said this. So in the book of Romans, he gives you 11 chapters of defining who we are in Christ, the indicatives. Before he ever comes to chapter 12, where he says, Therefore, um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on these mercies that I've been talking to you about for 11 chapters, um, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service of worship. He then moves to the imperatives. Um, He spends 11 chapters describing the beauty of our position in Christ, And having explained that, he then moves towards the imperatives, telling us how to live. But he never tells us what to do before he tells us who we are. Gang, that's a sequence that you've got to always keep in mind. Our living grows out of who we are. Our living doesn't make us who we are. Our living grows out of who we are already. We're already this in Christ and therefore, we are to live like this, never the other way around. He does that in the book of Romans. He does it in the book of Ephesians. Um, he does it in the book of Colossians. And he does it in the book of Galatians. He has spent five and a half, four and a half chapters telling, trying to settle this issue that a man is not to be bound to law, that you're free in Christ. And then you come to verse 13, and now he's ready to pivot towards the indicatives and to tell us what things should be true about us. But it's not, let me tell you the things that should be true about us so that you can become this. No, no, no. You've already become this. And as a result of the, I mean, that being true, then we live like that. Indicatives always precede imperatives. And not only do you see it taught in verses, you see it taught in his methodology. The Apostle Paul always arranges his, his, his letters in this, in this way. He starts with the indicatives, and then he moves to the imperatives. Verse 13, he's shifting away from the indicatives, and he's moving to the imperatives. Okay, That is a classic Pauline strategy as to how he writes his books. Every one of them are like that. And here it is again. <coughs> Pardon me. Look at uh, verse 13. He says, <coughs> Excuse me. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He is shifted now, and he's going to spend the rest of his book talking about the imperatives that should be characteristic of those of us who claim to know this Jesus. But he is giving you here the, an, another uh, lesson on the nature of Christian freedom, uh, the nature of Christian liberty. Um, gang, there are two errors that you can make when it comes to Christian liberty. The first one is in verse 1. 
chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's one mistake. When it comes to Christian liberty, one of the mistakes that you can make is to go back to slavery. The other mistake is here in verse 13. Um, for you were called for freedom, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Um, the, one of the um, errors is legalism. The other error on the other end of the spectrum is license. Um, don't let this happen to you, but don't let this happen to you either. Christian liberty is not Christian license. Uh, we are free from a guilty conscience. Yes. We're going to talk about that more as I close, but we're free from a guilty conscience, but we're not free to live as we please. There are rules. As long as you understand this principle, then rules should never frighten you. The rules are not lived out so that I can become a Christian. The rules are lived out because I am a Christian. But but never be squeamish about talking about rules and laws and commandments and statutes. David isn't. You need to read Psalm 119. He uses those words over and over and over again. Um, My being set free does not mean that I am free to live as I please. There are rules. But the, but the obedience associated with those rules are never meritorious. They never earn me anything. They, they just express um, and give evidence of the life that is inside me. Um, you know, I think non-Christians view Christians as being under this cruel, cruel bondage. Well, well gang... Since when was doing things to please somebody that you love bondage? You know, you remember that song? I mean, I'm really aging myself now. Um, uh, he ain't a he's my brother. Well, I mean, do you get the message of that, that song? It's not a burden. I mean, love makes that obedience not a bondage. No, it's not a bondage. It's a... It's an expression of my love for the object. Um, I, I'm, I'm free from having to try and earn God's favor. I'm free from that. But I am not free to live any way I like. Gang, um, Christianity in some circles is used as a, as a pretext for self-indulgence. And there's even a term that has come up, um, and and I'm not the originator of this term, but I sure like it. It's called hyper-grace. Do we here at at Grace Evan love the beauties of grace? Oh, you bet we do. But grace is, is um, not to be used as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Hyper-grace is um, um, evidenced in things like, um, um, you know, uh, God wants me to be happy. 
or um, I deserve this. And I'm under grace, not law, you know. Um, law doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. If you simply understand this sequence, I am this because of pure sovereign grace, and because God has done this wonderful work of changing me, he calls me to a life that looks like that. And then, But to deny that there are any imperatives puts you into this lump of hyper-grace. Grace is amazing and it's glorious, but folks, it can be abused. Don't use this freedom as a... I mean, look at that language uh, as an opportunity for the flesh. Um, flesh, one's fallen nature. Um, You know, guys, in some circles, it seems that the more that grace is preached, um, the more they tend to neglect their souls. Well, folks, um, grace is not intended to do that. Um, Preaching grace or Christian freedom, whatever you want to call it, at least the real kind, it's supposed to... It's supposed to eat away at our motivation and our desire to sin. Because the more I understand these things that have happened to me, the more I want to do things as an expression of love for the one who did these things for me. Um, uh, The real thing, guys, is supposed to eat away at our motivation our interest in, and our desire to sin. You know, freedom's kind of a tricky word. Um, It's a scary word. And in legalistic circles, you don't want to use that word too often because people might take you seriously. But gang, if you... When when I say freedom, um, if you're hearing that um, that I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to go do as I please, then you misunderstand Christian freedom. Because it doesn't mean that. I'm free from a guilty conscience. I'm free from trying to or ever having to earn God's favor. But I am not free to live as as I please and call that grace. It's not grace. It's hyper-grace, guys. You know... um, this will set people to discussing. Um, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist, when you, when you put a hyper in there, then you've got a mess on your hands. But I'm a Calvinist, and that's beautiful. But hyper-Calvinism is ugly. I love grace, but I, I don't subscribe to hyper-grace. Because that, then it becomes, it becomes ugly. Gang, let, let, let's think of it like this. The gospel tells us that God is so holy that nothing short of a complete payment for sin and perfect righteousness of Christ can satisfy him. Doesn't the gospel tell us that? It tells us, I'll say it again. 
that God is so holy that nothing but a complete satisfaction of my sin and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ will satisfy him. That's true. So, oh, ladies and gentlemen, God is far more holy than the legalist God because the legalist God is is satisfied by some kind of imperfect trying hard. But on the other hand, the gospel tells us that God is so loving that we can receive this perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ now and stand complete and safe in God's sight. And and guys, that means that God is far more loving than the liberals God who don't, don't have a God who dies on the cross. The gospel, therefore, um, it, it neither leads us to living a guilty life because of God's loving acceptance in Christ, nor does it lead me or allow me to lead an unholy life because of God's absolute holiness. Did you get that? He's so holy that nothing but the perfect righteousness of Christ will satisfy him. But he's so loving that he, that he will grant to the undeserving perfect righteousness that allows me to stand. So, so the gospel is telling me that I don't have to be guilty. But it's also telling me um, that I can't live any way I want to. To forget either one of those is to make me guilty of either verse 1 or verse 13. you got two errors that come to, when, when it comes to Christian liberty. One of them in verse 1, legalism. One of them in license in verse 13. And if I forget either one of these things, that God is so holy that he demands perfect righteousness, but he's so loving that he's willing to grant it to me and, and, um, <clears throat> by way of imputation uh, through Christ's finished work. So the end result is, I don't want to live a life that's one of license, and I don't want to live a life of legality. Let, let, me, let me give you just a, um, what do they call this? A case study. Um, uh, we're going to take um, a sin, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of analyze it. And it's one of my favorites. Um, a lie. Now, nobody lies in here, do they? I'm the only one that does that. Nobody lies in here. You hadn't told a lie in, you know, since you were six, right? Okay, guys, I got to tell you this story. I've told you this story before, but it's so, it, it so illustrates my point. I'm going to tell it again, but, but before I get there, um, take lying, denounced by the scriptures. You know that. But on the one hand, the gospel tells me, <clears throat> pardon me, 
that I do not need to fear that God is going to cast me out of his kingdom because I lied. I'm free from the legal penalty of my lie. Um, and, and I'll tell you this too. The, the, the poor guy who is seeking to be perfectly honest as a way of winning God's favor, oh my goodness, they are going to be so devastated when they slip up and lie. Um, but the gospel says that there is no legal penalty associated with my lie. But it also, I mean, it assures me that my dishonesty will not damn me. However, let's talk a minute about why I lied. Okay? Now, now's when I'm going to tell you the story that I've already told you before. But it really is a good story. And it sure does illustrate my point. So, Bear with me, if you've heard this before. Um, <clears throat> this is not about you lying. This is about me lying. Um, it, it was back in Ocala. Now, I left Ocala 30 years ago, so I haven't lied since. Um, <laughs> but it was, um, um, I was the senior pastor of this church, and we had built about three buildings. And um, as we grew, you know, we, we added some staff, and we added some uh, equipment and all that business. And so, uh, so we had a couple of secretaries back then, and um, uh, and we had an answering machine, you know, a, a, a telephone device answering machine. You know, we, we don't have those things anymore, but you know, they just, hello, uh, we're not home right now, but leave us your name and number and we'll call you back. You know, that kind of thing. Um, that's all on these little pocket things now. Uh, but it was in this little machine and you had this little tape and you had to record. You remember those? You remember those? Well, um, the church had kind of outgrown it and they said they were going to throw it away. And I said, well, I want it. And they said, well, hang on, you know, you, you, it's all yours, take it, it's all yours. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it was five, a little after five o'clock or so, and, and um, it was time to go home, so they told me I could have it. So I went over to the wall and unplugged it and, uh, you know, was going to head home with it. And, and uh, there, was another <laughs> there was another wire that went into the wall. And, and I didn't know what that was. Um, I, I, I don't know a lot about wires. Um, or how these things operate, but you know, I went over to the little wire and I, I, I tugged on it just a little bit, and and uh, you know, and it it looked like, and so I tugged on it a little bit more and popped right out, and there it was, and <laughs> off I went and took the the answering machine home to my house. The next day, I show up for work, and lo and behold, the phones are down. And they and there's the little Bell South truck, you know, in the parking lot, and 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 there's the guy uh, from Bell South who had been called over to fix our, our our phone system that was now down, and he was in the little mechanical room, you know, where the mechan- where all the mechanicals. We got one of those right over there, and you know, there's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of wires, and and I mean, bless his heart, he's just working himself silly trying to fix our phones. And I wanted to go tell him, sir, the problem is not there. I think I know where the problem is. 
But I couldn't say that to him. So he asked me, could you, do you know what's going wrong here? And I said, I ain't got a clue. Because what kind of nincompoop goes up to a, to a wire and yanks it out of the wall? But I couldn't tell him that. Why? Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, there was a deep need in me to be viewed by him as being an intelligent and capable human being. And if I told him that I went up and yanked the wires out of the wall, he might think that I'm the nincompoop that I am. And I can't, I can't let him think like that. So my only remedy for him thinking of me like that is lying. But if I understand the gospel and I understand that my value as a person is because of my union with Christ and that my life is hid with Christ in God and that my identity is safe even though you think I'm an incompoop then I can I'm free not to lie, but to tell the truth. You see, it's the gospel indicatives of knowing who I am because of all that Christ has done on my behalf. It's those gospel indicatives that propels me to a life of obedience. I don't have to lie to you anymore. Because if you think I'm an idiot, it's okay. Because my identity is safe. So, though I am free from the penalty of a violation of a of a statute of God, by telling that which was not true, I'm free from that penalty. What is it that's going to change me into a truth teller? Thou shalt bear no false witness. Is it law? Or is it an understanding and a recognition of who I am? That I have worth that you cannot steal from me and you cannot add to me. I've got it. And because I know I'm valuable and that my value does not depend on your opinion, now I have gospel motivation to go obey him. The only thing, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that will make us obedient 
is not more law. It is not going over the Ten Commandments with you over and over. and You already know them. They're written on your heart, by the way. The only thing that's going to make me a truth teller is when I finally recognize that my worth is safe, that my identity is intact, that my, my, at the center of my being, I'm a worthwhile man only because I am found in union with Christ. Once that's safe, once that's settled, then now I don't have to lie to you anymore. I don't have to lie to you so that you think nice things about me. I can tell you the truth. And that's what the gospel, that's how the gospel propels us, motivates us, removes motivations to disobey and eats away at the vitals of our desire to sin. As I find out more and more about who I am. Let me say this just real quick because I don't want to leave it dangling until next week. Um, Notice at the end, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity, but through love, serve one another. Guys, I've I've said this before just recently, but um, people are not things to serve us. And Christian liberty is not to be exercised... um, in a way that I get more people to serve me. It's supposed to be used to motivate me to serve others. So I I, I leave you with this, and I I said this to you about six weeks ago. If everyone in this church served like you do, what would Gracie Van look like? Um... Am I only a taker? Then I would encourage you to read this last little clause of verse 13. Um, Guys, if you're only a taker, do you know how many people have to serve so that you can take? Gang, service, you know, you've got this thing that people talk about in churches, and it happens to be true, unfortunately. It's called the Pareto Principle. 20% of the people do 80% of the... Gang, look at it with me again. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. There has got to be Something in you, about you, a part of you that obeys that serving one another. This is the, the illustration that I used a couple of six weeks ago, and I thought it was such a good... I didn't think this up, but um, if, if everybody served in this church like you do, what would she look like? What would this church look like? Would she look like a battleship getting ready for battle with everybody manning their stations? Or would the church look more like a cruise ship with everyone waiting for someone to come serve them? Gang, one of the evidences that this I know, just one of them, 
is that we, in love, serve one another. And when you know who you are, you're set free to go do that. But if you've got to protect your space, if you're really insecure about who you are, and you don't want anybody to ever, you know, take advantage of you, then you're going to be more of a taker than a server. It all depends, ladies and gentlemen, on knowing that my life is hidden with Christ and God. It always comes back to that. Let's quit. Our Father, I I do pray that you will uh, exhort us from this text as well as all others. But this one uh, that seems to be so relevant, uh, would you you, um, remind us that you expect from us as people who are blood-bought, that you expect from us that we are serving uh, others in the body? Would you remind us that this grand freedom that we have is never to be used in in a way that, um, uh, that reflects that I do as I please? We live under the laws of our great king, who is so holy that nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ will satisfy him but who also is so loving that he's willing to impute Jesus' righteousness to the undeserving via faith. Oh, might that gospel resonate deep within our souls. We ask it, of course, as always, in Jesus' name, amen.